Whether you're making the same breakfast that you have every day or baking a cake for an extra special day, eggs are a staple in our diets. Eggland's best eggs are nutritionally superior to ordinary eggs, containing more vitamins and 25% less saturated fat. Not only are they better for you, but Eggland's best eggs taste better too. There's a reason that they're America's number one eggs. Visit egglandsbest.com for additional information and delicious recipes. Hi, it's Martha Stewart. You know, I spend a lot of time thinking about dirt. At 3 a.m.? At all hours of the day, really. What people don't know is that not all dirt is the same. You need dirt with the right kind of nutrients. New miracle Grow organic raised bed and garden soil is so dense, so full of nutrient-rich, high-quality ingredients. miracle Grow is simply the best. Welcome to True Crime Garage. Wherever you are, whatever you're doing, thanks for listening. I'm your host, Nick, and with me, as always, is a man that would like to point out that your neighbors are not the folks that they appear to be. Here is the captain. It's good to be seen, and it's good to see you. Thanks for listening. Thanks for telling a friend. This week, we are more than excited to be featuring Don't Worry, My Mom Said It's Cool by our friends at Hoof hearted brewing in marengo ohio this is a bourbon barrel aged imperial birthday cake stout brewed with astronaut ice cream abv 12 percent. that's right my mom said it's cool cool enough to earn four and a half bottle caps out of five and you know who else is cool our friends right here first up a cheers to jessica on Long Island. And a big shout out to Krista in Huntington Beach, California. Next up, we have a shout out to Carolyn in Toronto. And a big We Like Your Jib to Kel in Sakane, Pennsylvania. Next up, here we go with the cheers to Veronica in Minneapolis, Minnesota. And last but certainly not least, we have a cheers and a big Ron Swanson please and thank you that goes out to Jennifer in Atlanta, Georgia. Everyone we just mentioned, they helped us fill up the fridge for this week's case here in the garage. Yeah, B-W-E-R-U-N, Beer Run. Go to our website, truecrimegarage.com. Sign up on our mailing list if you want discounts on the store page. Also, if you need more True Crime Garage in your earballs, check out our bonus show called Off the Record. That's on Stitcher Premium. And while you're at it, while you're thinking about how great this show is, leave us five stars. It really helps really goes a long way to support the show and that's enough of the business that's right captain sign up on that mailing list if you want us to love you right back all right kiddos gather around grab a chair grab a beer let's talk some true crime
want everyone to stop for a second. Think about the life you have worked so hard to build and the relationships you have created and maintained. Think about your job. Sure, some days it's a real drag, but most of the time, you don't know what you, or more importantly, your family, would do without that job and career. What if that paycheck stopped coming in? How quickly would those bills start piling up? How quickly would you be at risk of losing it all? Everything. What would you do? Would your family turn their backs on you and say, you did this to yourself? Or would they stand by you and support? But even if they did, would you be able to face them? Now, I want all of our male listeners to stop and think about their situation. And this will hit even harder for the husbands and fathers in that group. Picture this. You are at work, and you receive the following letter. It is addressed to you by name at your workplace. The letter has no return address, but you can tell from the postmark it was mailed from a nearby city. It reads, Dear Sir, According to my girlfriend, you have asked her to go out many times and have asked the other female co-workers too. Due to your position and their jobs, you should not do this. This must stop at once for the good of all involved. If this does not stop, I will be forced to write to the board members, and I'd hate to do that. To prey on another man's girl is untouchable, especially when they are out trying to make a living. There's also talk of you dating a married woman and taking advantage of them. Do you need time and names again? Please think. I suggest you find yourself a pimple-faced whore and start up with her and leave my girls alone. Now, to all of the ladies listening who share all of the same concerns as the men, picture this. You are at home after a long day at work. You walk out to your mailbox to retrieve the daily mail. You pull the short stack from the box and see the usual catalog, advertisement, the electric bill, and then, what is this on the bottom of the stack? It's a letter addressed to you, with no return address, but you can tell from the postmark it was mailed from the busy city not too far up the highway from your town. You open the envelope. It is a handwritten letter. That reads, Stay away from your boss. Don't lie when asked about knowing him. I know where you live. I have been observing your house, and I know that you have children. This is no joke. Please take it serious. Everyone concerned has been notified, and everything will be over soon. Now, regardless of which camp you fall into, receiving such an ominous letter, and from an anonymous source, no doubt, would be of concern to any of us even the most honest and innocent of us would want to know why they received the letter and why the threatening pen pal refused to sign a name or leave a return address. Even if you could just brush it off, what do you do 
when you receive another letter, and then one after that. And regardless if the implied or otherwise allegations are true or false, most of us have a secret, some more than one or two. Would you want to be outed at work? Would you want your secrets brought into the light? And again, even if the allegations are false, you will wonder, why me? Why did I receive these letters? Why did I receive this threat? And how can I stop something that is not happening? And then it occurs to you, maybe I'm not the only person who has received such letters. And if I'm not the only one, who else? What do the other letters say? And is it about me? And more importantly, why does the writer know where I work and my job title? Why does the writer know where I live? And why is the writer watching me and my children? This is True Crime Garage. Would it be an understatement, Captain, to say that Unsolved Mysteries is one of most true crime buffs favorite shows of all time yeah and if you don't know you better ask somebody ask somebody just some random person you better call tyrone in season seven episode six of unsolved mysteries this is back in the robert stack days the good old days as they say unsolved mysteries ran a segment titled poison pen which nowadays most people refer to that case that they were talking about under several different names and these would be the Circleville Writer or the Circleville Letters or the Letter Writer. It has many names when you start to dive into this case. And I have seen online many people saying that this is one of the masses' favorite Unsolved Mysteries episodes of all time, which makes sense. It's a very intriguing mystery right here in our own home state of Ohio. And I remember seeing this episode when I was a kid. And who doesn't like a mystery where there's letters involved? That's correct. Everybody likes a mystery with letters involved. Now, because this is such a complicated case, in my humble colonel opinion, it has a lot of moving parts and pieces. I would like to go through Unsolved Mysteries' original overview of the case, and then we can dive into it in further detail. Starts off. Circleville, Ohio is a small town south of Columbus. It's a place that rarely attracts outside attention. But in the 70s, frightening letters started to arrive. The first letter was received by Mary Gillespie, a school bus driver, telling her that the letter writer was aware that she was having an affair with the superintendent of schools and that it had better stop. In addition to allegations of an affair, the letter carried an ominous threat. It read in part, I know where you live. I've been observing your house and I know you have children. This is no joke. Please take it serious. The envelope was postmarked Columbus, Ohio. There was no return address, no signature inside, no way to tell who sent it. Now, a week later, Mary received another letter with a similar tone. Mary kept the letters to herself, though, until her husband, Ron, also received one. 
According to journalist Martin Yant, quote, this letter addressed to Ron Gillespie told him that if he didn't do something to stop this affair, that his life was undoubtedly in danger, end quote. The alleged affair became the talk of Circleville. The mysterious writer understood the power of gossip. The next letter was even more threatening. It read in part, quote, Gillespie. You have had two weeks and done nothing. Make her admit the truth and inform the school board. If not, I will broadcast it on CBs, posters, signs, and billboards until the truth comes out. So this one sounds to me, Captain, like it would be a letter again addressed to Ron Gillespie. He is the husband of the woman accused of having the affair with the superintendent. In this letter, the writer is threatening, hey, I told you about this affair. You've had two weeks to tell the school board or to, uh, yeah, to inform the school board. And you've not done that. If you don't do something soon, I'm going to broadcast this on CBs, which back in the day, more people had CBs than they have today, not just in their vehicles, but some people kept them in their homes or their garages and would turn them on, listen to them and even talk on there. People even had big musical hits like, C.W. McCall with Convoy. They would discuss these CB radios and the lingo and how to conduct yourself while on the CB radio and such. Mm-hmm. But this is also a threat, right? This is, hey, if you don't do this, I'm writing you to tell you about this affair. You've been made aware. You haven't done what I've asked you. I'm going to announce this on CB radios. I'm going to put up these posters and signs. Everybody's going to know the truth will come out. Well, and here's what's kind of confusing to me. You would think that the writer would be mad at the superintendent or the wife for having an affair, but it seems like he's targeting the guy that's a victim in all this. Yes, it's weird. It's like I've wrote to your wife, threatened her. She didn't do anything. So now I'm writing to you, and I'm giving you task to complete. Now, according to Unsolved Mysteries, Mary and Ron evidently told three people about the letters that they were receiving. This would be Ron's sister, Linda Freshour, her husband, Paul Freshour, and Paul's sister. Mary had an idea about who was sending the letters, and she had a plan. According to Paul Freshour, Mary and Ron Gillespie's brother-in-law, quote, we thought we'd scare the guy. We sent him four or five letters. There was no violence in them or anything, just that we knew who he was and what he was doing, and we sent him the letters, end quote. For a while, they say the plan worked. The threatening letters stopped. But then on August 19, 1977, Ron received a phone call. The call seemed to confirm Ron's suspicions about the identity of the letter writer. According to journalist Martin Yant, quote, he told his children he was going out to confront the letter writer. He took his weapon. He did not seem to be drunk, said goodbye to his children and went out. Now, angry and upset, Ron hurried to the family's red and white pickup truck, even though at one time the letter writer had said he was watching that vehicle. According to Martin Yant, we should point out who Martin Yant is since we keep referencing him from Unsolved Mysteries. He worked in the greater Columbus area for decades. He's a very good journalist and reporter and has 
done lots of great work over the years here in our area. So he's interviewed at length on Unsolved Mysteries, and this is another quote from him. Within a short distance, this is in regards to Ron leaving that night. Within a short distance at an intersection that Ron knew very well, he lost control of the vehicle, hit a tree, and was killed. Somewhere between leaving the house and hitting that tree, his gun had fired one shot, and there was never any explanation for when or how or at whom that gun could have been fired. The police ruled Ron Gillespie's death an accident, but several Circleville residents soon received anonymous letters accusing the sheriff of a cover-up. Ron Gillespie's brother-in-law, Paul Freshour, said the sheriff had changed his story, saying that the sheriff agreed with him, with Paul, that there was foul play. And then when Paul contacted the sheriff again, the sheriff changed his attitude completely. Then he was telling Paul that it wasn't foul play, and that a suspect had passed a polygraph test. Well, wouldn't they know if he fired a gun that day or not? Wouldn't there be evidence of that? There would be if you test for that. There also could be other ways of finding that uh, that evidence. So we don't know if they tested for that, or they, if they did test for that, they're not telling us? From what I found, Captain, they didn't test for that. I don't know if, if uh, GSR or gunpowder residue or whatever you want to call it if that was available. It was. I talked to the source saying that would have been available. And my, cause my argument is if he fired the gun at, at somebody and then he ran off the road and hit this tree and died to me, that, that leans towards foul play. If the gun was never shot and it was just found within the car and he hit a tree. Okay. You know, possibly just an accident. Exactly. You're exactly right there. So everyone at the time wanted to know, and still to this day, was Ron Gillespie's death an accident? Or was it foul play? And, of course, why had one bullet been fired from his handgun? After Ron's death, the letters kept coming. His wife Mary and the, super, his wife Mary and the superintendent of schools eventually admitted to a relationship, but said it began after the letters were sent. Mary kept her job driving a school bus. But beginning in 1983, the letter writer began putting signs along her bus route. So let's point out here, though, Captain, that the truck accident involving the death of Ron Gillespie was 1977. Now, on the Unsolved Mysteries overview of this case, we are at 1983 on the timeline. The letters have continued for all of this time. And at this point in 83, the letter writer began putting signs along Mary Gillespie's bus route. Mary's daughter was being targeted with some of the slander and nasty things that were being put on these signs. Again, according to Martin Yant, Mary finally took action. She ripped down a sign. Much to her surprise, behind the sign was a box and string and also another post that was attached to a fence post. She took it into the bus and she opened it up and there was a small pistol. When she looked closer, Mary realized that it was a crude booby trap designed to fire the gun at her or whoever removed the sign. Investigators discovered that someone had tried to rub the serial number off of the gun. But when lab tests were able to read it accurately, the case took an incredible turn. The gun belonged to Mary's brother-in-law, Paul Freshour. 
Of course, Paul denied any involvement. According to Paul, quote, I admitted the gun was mine, but I hadn't seen it for a long time. I had no reason to check up on it or anything, and I don't know when it had come up missing. I really don't know what happened to it. And I told them that, and that's the truth, and that's how it was, end quote. Do you know if other people saw these signs on the road, if there was eyewitnesses to this, or if it was just she had a car full of signs and and this booby trap? Um, it sounds like there may have been. There's also an eyewitness to say that there was no trap set up or no sign that they saw 20 minutes to 30 minutes before it was supposedly found. The other thing that's also not clear is if she was the only one on her bus at the time that it was found. But what ends up being the result, Captain, is on February 25th, 1983, Sheriff Dwight Radcliffe asked Paul Freshour to take a handwriting test. Paul agreed to this and says, quote, he would give me an actual letter and ask me maybe to do the envelope part just as near as I could to the envelope. And then on some, he would take the actual letter out and have me to do them as near as I could on the letters. And I did them because I knew I wasn't responsible for the letters, end quote. Martin Yant said that this is not the correct way to conduct handwriting analysis. Of course, that's not the correct way to conduct handwriting analysis. Martin Yant goes on to say that is not the proper way to test to see if someone has a certain writing style because if they're copying from a letter, they're going to try to emulate the style. So they didn't really say that these letters were written by Paul Freshour. They said that they could have been written by Paul Freshour. The sheriff also searched Paul's garage. Paul Freshour was charged with attempted murder. And Paul goes on to say he, meaning the sheriff, called the prosecutor and told the prosecutor that it was my writing on the booby trap and I was under arrest for attempted murder. Later that year, in October of 1983, Paul Freshour went on trial for the attempted murder of his sister-in-law, Mary Gillespie. Paul Freshour never took the stand in his own defense. It was a decision he would come to regret. Paul was found guilty of attempted murder. He said the verdict was completely unexpected. Paul Freshour was given the maximum sentence for attempted murder, 7 to 25 years. Everyone assumed that he had written the Circleville letters, and everyone figured that they would stop once Paul was in prison. Everyone was wrong. Journalist Martin Yant. Quote, they were being received all over a large area of central Ohio, so a lot of people couldn't understand how Paul Freshour could be mailing all these letters from prison. Following repeated complaints from Sheriff Radcliffe, the warden of the prison had Paul placed in solitary confinement, but the letters still continued. All of them were postmarked from Columbus, even though Paul was imprisoned across the state in Lima. Martin Yant said the warden became convinced that Paul was not writing the letters, saying that a full-scale investigation was conducted twice, possibly three times, during which Paul Freshour was put into isolation, and the warden of the prison then wrote a letter saying that as far as he was concerned, it was impossible for Paul to be writing these letters and sending them from prison. For seven years, Paul was a model prisoner. But when he became eligible for parole, the parole board rejected his request based on the letter still being sent. 
A few days after his hearing, Paul himself received a sadistic letter from the Phantom Rider. It read in part, Now when are you going to believe you aren't going to get out of there? I told you two years ago, when we set them up, they stay set up. Don't you listen at all. In May of 1994, Paul Freshour was finally granted parole after serving 10 years. To this day, he maintains his innocence. He's sure that the real criminal is still at large. The Circleville letters finally stopped, but many questions remain. Who actually wrote the letters? Was Ron Gillespie's death an accident or was he murdered? And who made the booby trap found by Mary Gillespie? Do you want to set your child up for success? Of course you do. That's why you need to check out IXL Learning today. IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids covering math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed to help them really understand and master topics in a fun way. It's powered by advanced algorithms. IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or or personality. There's one site for all kids in your home pre-K to 12th grade. Kids could use it at home on their computer or on an app on your phone or a tablet. No more grading those worksheets. IXL grades everything for you. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. I love recommending IXL learning. Kids can learn at home or on the go. And all my friends and family that are using it absolutely love it because it's so easy to set up and so easy to use. And even the kids that I've recommended it to their parents have told me, hey, Captain, thank you. I was having problems in math and my parents couldn't help me, but IXL could. Do you want to get your kids back on track or do you just want to get your kids ahead? Do so with IXL Learning. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And True Crime Garage listeners get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when you sign up today at IXL.com garage. Visit IXL.com garage to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Check out IXL.com garage today. The best part of spring cleaning takeaway is the post-clean clarity you get. It's kind of like when you find out that you've been paying a fortune for wireless. When Mint Mobile has phone plans for $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan. It's time to switch to Mint Mobile. All plans come with high-speed data and unlimited talk and text delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. Use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and bring your phone number along with all of your existing contacts. Ditch overpriced wireless with Mint Mobile's limited time deal and get three months of premium wireless service for 15 bucks a month. Save a lot of money with Mint Mobile. Get their great mobile wireless service delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. That's premium service at a great price. 
To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash TCG. That's mintmobile.com slash TCG. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash TCG. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with Factor's no-prep, no-mess meals. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer thanks to the menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factor's fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great-tasting meals. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. Crush your wellness goals this May with dietitian approved meals and ingredients that you can trust. Make your day delicious. From breakfast to dessert, stay fueled with easy, nutritious options. Treat yourself to restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. I am new to Factor, and I have been loving every minute of it. I have a problem, and it's called lunch. Some days I need a pack of lunch, and some days I work from home. Whether I'm at home or whether I'm on the go, Factor is fueling my lunch from now on. Head to factormeals.com slash truecrimegarage50 and use code truecrimegarage50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code truecrimegarage50 at factormeals.com slash truecrimegarage50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. All right, we're back. Cheers, mates. He's back. I'm back. We're all back. Cheers to my friend Jerry Reeves. He partied more than most of them, but he was always the life of the party. Cheers to you, my friend. You will be sadly missed. We will pour a little out for you. That was the rundown, Captain, from Unsolved Mysteries when they covered this case, titled it The Poison Pen, and it's one of people's favorites, favorite segments of the show, and it had so many great segments to choose from over the years. Now, I didn't lay it out there as well as uh, Robert Stack would have or the wonderful people over at the program would have back in the day, but that was their general overview at unsolved mysteries back then. If you've only watched the current ones, you're unaware of this, but back then they did segments. You would tune in. It was an hour long show. They would cover often cover a couple different cases. And a lot of times the cases had nothing to do with one another. That's why the show was so great. And so interesting. If one case didn't catch your interest, the next one would. And sometimes they're not just talking about true crime. They're talking about, ghost or aliens or Bigfoot. And one quote, or I'm sorry, one post that I saw online that I thought was absolutely brilliant, a guy that nailed it. 
He said, you know, I used to watch this show when I was a kid, and the worst thing in the world was after you would watch Unsolved Mysteries, I think it aired at 8 or 9 o'clock at night. So it's not getting over till 9 or 10, depending on where you lived. But he said the worst thing in the world was to watch Unsolved Mysteries and at the end of the program, being told by your parents that you had to take the trash out to the street. <laughs> he said he was terrified every time that that would happen. Well, and to be honest with the audience, you would have done a better job of the breakdown if our show paid you more. <laughs> yes, I've, I've been asking for more for more pay. One of the best things, and I think you probably can agree with me, by watching the old Unsolved Mysteries was towards the end of an episode, you might be watching about a case that you're so wrapped up into and fascinated, and all of a sudden, change of music, sound of the alarms, update. Mm -hmm. And it would be an update on the case that they were just talking about. Because sometimes they had re... They, sometimes they had recorded and filmed that segment months in advance, and the case had moved along since their production of that case. Which was always really exciting. And this case... Because there's such a mystery of who was writing these letters. Was it one individual? Was it a group of people? But they cover the story almost 10 years later, and then they receive a letter themselves. Yes, so they are covering the story after Paul Freshour is released from prison. So many years after the fact, and they're covering it because not only is there this mystery writer that's out there, but now we have the story of, okay, well, this guy that everybody thought that did it, that tried to kill this woman, that was writing all these letters, he was locked up and he couldn't have possibly been writing these letters while he was locked up for practically 10 years. So in December of 1993, Unsolved Mysteries received a postcard at their offices. And the postcard was, they call it a postcard, but I'll describe it here in a minute. It was, as they say, a threat designed to keep them from telling the story of the Circleville writer. And what I'm a little curious about here, Captain, is the way that they word that is that they must have done some of the production, if not all of the production for this segment, and then received this threat via mail, snail mail, before actually airing it. Because it would be a little weird if they hadn't even done any of the production yet. How would this writer or whoever sent this postcard, as they call it, even know that they were going to cover the story? Yeah, my suspicion is that they had a crew go to Circleville and it, it being such a small town, word would get out quickly. Oh, by the way, I mean, and Unsolved Mysteries was a huge, hugely popular show. Unsolved Mysteries down in our little town what are they talking about? Oh, they're asking about the Circleville letters. And at the very least, they would have been in the greater Columbus area because we know that they recorded interviews with Martin Yant and with Paul Freshour as well. Mm -hmm. So what they called a postcard, I don't know that that's the best description, at least not the one that I would give it. What it looks to me is like somebody took almost like a three by five card and kind of cut the corners on it. So it almost appears to look like like a tag at a tag sale, an old school tag sale. Yeah. And somebody wrote in small block letters, all capitalized, forget Circleville, Ohio. Do nothing to hurt Sheriff Radcliffe. If you come to Ohio, you L sickos will pay. Signed, the Circleville writer. 
Yeah, and all the letters that we do have, I will try to post those on our Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter. And there's some people that might not be familiar with this case, Captain, and they're going, what do you mean all the letters that you, quote, do have? Well, they're, depending on the sources, it's listed as high as 1,000 letters that were sent throughout the years. And the thing is, as great of coverage as Unsolved Mysteries did on the case, we need to open it up. Because their little segment sounds very centralized, makes the case very compact, that we have these few people that were involved in this case, that this writer was writing letters to Mary Gillespie, her husband, and we also have the involvement of their brother-in-law and Ron's sister. We have the mention of the superintendent of the schools where Mary worked for. Mm -hmm. And it's all very centralized in Pickaway County. But this case expands years. The letters expand for years. And the letters were being sent to not just people in businesses in Pickaway County. This involves Franklin County, Madison County, Ross County, and several cities uh, throughout. And I think we should dive into that. And the cities that you're going to hear the most will be Columbus, which is the capital city here, Grove City, and Circleville. Now, Circleville, Ohio is 25 miles south of Columbus, the capital of Ohio. And in the mid-1970s to 1980, the population in Circleville is just under 11,700 people. Within that general area, Captain, we have Westfall School District which operates one elementary school, one middle school, and Westfall High School. The way that Unsolved Mysteries tells the story is that Mary Gillespie starts receiving these letters, when in fact there were earlier letters. Mary Gillespie was not the first target for the letters, if you will. Yeah, so some of these people were receiving letters, and there would be like little unknown facts about them, but it'd be normally bad stuff. I know you're doing this or I know you're doing that. And so it's really, you know, like you said, maybe there's a thousand letters out there, but some of these people that received letters never came forward because they didn't want to share maybe this dark secret with everybody. Right. If the letter writer is warning you about a secret that you're keeping, you don't want to present that to everybody and say, Hey, look, I received this letter. So the first letters You know, it's very quickly in the series that Mary Gillespie is sent a letter. But, however, the first letter is sent to Gordon Massey. So, who is Gordon Massey? Gordon Massey is Mary Gillespie's boss. She drives a school bus for Westfall, and he is the superintendent of Westfall School District. He's the first one to receive a letter. This letter was addressed to Westfall High School Attention Superintendent Massey. No return address. And it says, Dear Sir, according to my girlfriend, you have asked her to go out many times and have asked the other female bus drivers too. Due to your position and their jobs with you, you should not do this. This must stop at once for the good of the school and families. If they are not stopped, I will be forced to write to the school board. I'd hate to do that. 
To prey on another man's girl is untouchable, especially when they're out there trying to make a living. There's also talk of you dating a married woman and taking advantage of them. Do you need time and names again? Please think. I suggest you find yourself a pimple-faced whore and start up with her and leave my girls alone. So that's the real version of the letter. We mentioned that in the trailer earlier, but kind of generalized it so we could tell this story later. Superintendent Massey receives this. Again, it's not addressed to to anybody other than him. And at the Westfall High School, there is no return address. However, we know that it's postmarked from Columbus, Ohio, 25 miles up the road. And it came from the Postal Hub 430, which at the time in 1977 was the only postal hub in the city of Columbus, meaning you could mail that letter from anywhere in the big city of Columbus, and it's going to have to go through that hub. So mm-hmm. all we can say is we know that that letter was mailed somewhere in the city of Columbus. Right, but it could have been south side, north side, east side, west side. We have no clue. Correct. Now, think about what the threat is and what's stated in this letter to Gordon Massey. It says, hey, you're hitting on these female bus drivers. You're taking advantage of them. These are people that are out trying to work for a living. You're taking advantage of your position. It also mentions that there is even talk of you having a relationship with a married woman. It doesn't necessarily name anybody there, but we can assume by later letters, maybe they are referring to Mary Gillespie. And it also says, this is one thing that I think is weird. It, it, it says, well, there's two things that I think are very weird about this letter. Right. One, it says, hey, if you don't put this to an end, if you don't stop what you're doing, I will be forced to write to the school board. And I'd hate to do that. <laughs> it's like it's right. It's like the writer is giving him a warning. Hey, I know you're up to no good, right. but if you stop what you're doing, nobody has to know about it. We'll we'll just let it be. But then he ends the letter. I say he. We don't know if it's a she or he that wrote this letter, but the person ends the letter with leave my girls alone. Almost like they're referring to the female bus drivers as their girls. I was popular with the school bus driver. The tricky thing here, Captain, is the second letter goes to the school board. It's addressed to the school board. Remember, the writer threatened to tell the board of education down there what was going on. However, this letter is received two days later, meaning the writer threw out the threat and told Massey to stop doing whatever the writer thought he was doing, Mm -hmm. but did not give him time to really stop or address the situation. Oh, the writer's a dick. If you you don't stop, I'm going to tell on you, but boom, two days later, a letter arrives that is, in fact, telling on him to the school board. It's not until after both Massey and the school board have been contacted several times via these letters that Mary Gillespie starts to receive the letters. And then when she's keeping them to herself, eventually Ron Gillespie starts to receive them. The weird thing, too, here that we see early on in these letters is that this is where it is centralized. It's centralized around Westfall High School, Gordon Massey, the superintendent, and the female bus drivers. That's the world that this writer is writing about. And the person, whoever is writing this, or persons, 
seems to have some good working knowledge of the behind the scenes stuff for the bus drivers and the school system. Right. And we know this because in the fifth letter that is written, and this one is addressed to the school board, it's telling the school board, Hey, you need to talk to Gordon Massey, tell him to stop doing what he's doing. And if you want to verify what I'm saying is true, talk to the drivers, talk to the female bus drivers, ask driver number. This is very interesting. This one's received March 18th, 1977. It says, ask driver number 62917. My favorite driver. Well, driver number 62917 is Mary Gillespie. Right. I don't think that John Q. Public walking down the street somewhere in Circleville will know that Mary Gillespie is driver number 62917. That seems like a very behind-the-scenes piece of information. Yeah, it's a tough one here because we don't know exactly who he wrote to before, but like you said, it becomes Mary Gillespie almost becomes his singular focus for a time period. Yeah. With Gord Massey being the original receiver of the letters and then the board members. And you're right. I Technically, we don't know for certain. Only the writer themselves would know when they actually started. But the general consensus seems to be that Superintendent Gord Massey was the first to receive a letter. Right. Or at least publicly acknowledged that this was the first letter to be sent. Well, look, if I was sent a letter in the mail like this, a threatening lo- letter... Anyone's going to sit back and go, who is doing this? Who's doing this? Who would I know that is capable of writing a letter? Or or, or who maybe am I pissing off by being involved in the situation? And that's the other tricky thing, too. Being involved in the situation implies that you are doing what the writer thinks you are doing. And what the writer is saying is basically, I mean, without putting the exact words on paper, It's a threat of, oh, I'm going to go to your boss and anyone would think that, hey, this inappropriate relationship, if in fact it is going on, would warrant firing the superintendent, firing the bus driver for their misdealings. For their flicky flicky. The other thing that gets tricky too is it's a threat in in the sense that even if nothing is going on, don't you still worry as an employee go, well... I, it's hard for me to prove something is not going on. They may fire me anyway. Yeah, or what are the repercussions of her husband finding out? Is is he considered a hothead and he is he going to, you know, take matters into his own hands? Kill the superintendent, kill his wife. We've seen people do worse for less. And as we said, the writer eventually addresses Ron Gillespie saying, Hey, you've got to end this affair because I've already told Massey about it. I've already told your wife about it. They're not going to stop. You need to be the one to stop it and threatens, which you pointed out earlier, captain is bizarre to threaten Ron Gillespie, who, if in fact this stuff is happening, he is a victim as well. Yeah. And you would think that the writer feels slighted by this situation. If in fact it's going on, It appears that the writer believes it to be going on, whether it is or not. That is up for debate. But what we are later told is that the Gillespies 
tell the people that are closest to them about these letters. Hey, we're receiving these weird letters. And they tell Ron's sister, Karen, and her husband, Paul Freshour. They're incredibly close with these two. Paul says that him and Ron are best friends. And they devise this plan of, well, you know what? We think we know who's doing this. Again, very centralized, right, Captain? It's all behind the scenes involving the school, the school system, and the bus drivers. Yeah. Mary Gillespie's going to tell that group, I think that this guy, David Longberry, could be the author of these letters. That was my nickname in high school. So they devised this plan of, you know what, we're going to write these letters back to David Longberry. And essentially, they're sending him the letters, similar type letters that they are receiving. Mm-hmm. This says, hey, we know who you are. We know what you're doing. You better stop it. Or you will be thrashed. Right? What was the Circleville writer saying? I know what you're doing. You better stop it. Who is David Longberry? He's a bus driver. He's a co-worker of Mary Gillespie's. He's also an employee of Gordon Massey. This is an individual that may know, that should know, if he's good at his job, the inner workings and the behind-the-scenes stuff over there. So they say that they sent him a few letters, and the letters they're getting stop briefly, but then they start back up again. Like we stated before, Circleville is a very small community so just by the Gillespie's telling a couple people a small fire can spread rapidly, but there's other letters that are being sent to other individuals and businesses. And what's interesting here, Captain, is it starts to become somewhat general information within Circleville that these letters are being sent and received. And I think part of that is because either what the writer is accusing these people of is false or the people receiving them don't really care in the long run that the information gets out. So it kind of becomes general information that they're receiving these strange letters. And remember the threats of, hey, Ron, if you don't do something about this, I'm going to start broadcasting this business on CB radio and putting up posters everywhere and signs telling the general public, airing our grievances and your dirty laundry along the way about what is going on, what's truly going on. It's like question his manhood because if it's true that his wife is cheating on him, that questions his manhood. But the, now you have this letter writer saying, hey, I'm questioning your manhood that you that you won't even come out and do something about this. You won't even stop it. That shows you how little of a man you are. Yeah, I guess if the if the writer is the the end-all be-all of what is right and wrong at the end of the day, then they've decided what is wrong and right and drawn the line in the sand. Mm -hmm. And Ron's on the wrong side, according to the writer. So what goes on at this point, Captain? Now we are about midway through 1977. Someone is, in fact, putting up these signs or at least has threatened Ron and Mary to the point that they believe that they would put up these signs. So Ron is getting up every day a little bit earlier than he needs to. And on his way to work, he's driving around town for about an hour looking for any signs that may be put up. Mm -hmm. Sometimes there's signs. Most of the time there's not. But when he finds them, he takes them and he collects them. Well, especially in the 70s, because I used to teach in Circleville, but obviously not in the 70s. 
But back then, to get around the whole town, maybe 20 minutes, and you can go through pretty much every major street in Circleville. Yes, and this, to to paint a picture for anybody that's going to look this up on a map, to paint a better picture is the case is often referred to as the Circleville Rider. Again, notice that we said that this is going to expand in other into other counties, not just Pickaway County. But we're also talking about the majority of the activity that seems to be surrounded this case is Circleville all the way out to Darbyville, well, which a, is to the west of Circleville. But some sources will say that there were some letters that were very similar to the Circleville letters that were sent to other states. So I don't know. I couldn't find any confirmation of that, but I saw several sources that would state, oh, well, there was letters that were addressed to people in other states. So by August of 77, we have a situation that's escalated and Ron Gillespie is busy looking for signs. The Gillespies are trying to figure out who the letter writer could be. Well, now we have Mary Gillespie who goes to Florida and this would be in August of 1977 and she's down there on the night of August 19th. Her husband, Ron Gillespie, is at home. He's at their home where they've received these letters. The way that the legend goes, the local legend, the story is that he is there that night and late that night after the sun goes down, he receives a phone call. It's believed that the phone call is from the letter writer and Ron is able to determine, or at least his suspicions that he already had are confirmed by the phone call of who the letter writer is. He decides that he's going to go out and confront the writer. He goes upstairs, grabs his gun, tells his children goodbye, hops in the truck and drives off in a mad tear looking for this letter writer. The local legend is one of several different stories, but a couple of them are either Ron was chasing someone at a high rate of speed, or he was being run off the road, or he was being shot at and he was shooting at the, at someone else. The result is him crashing his truck into a tree and he's dead at the scene. Well, for people who haven't maybe seen the old Unsolved Mysteries, this reminds me of the Ray Rivera case where in the newer seasons of Unsolved Mysteries where he receives this mysterious phone call and leaves right away in a rage. And again, Circleville is a small area, so if the guy told him, well, meet me over at this park or meet me over, you know, you know, behind this bar or wherever, you could get there within 15, 20 minutes, no problem. And we don't know who the phone call was from. We don't know what was said on the phone call. We don't know 100%, in my opinion, if the phone call even took place. Right. But let's say that it did. Stuff of legend. The caller doesn't even have to say, hey, meet me here. According to the legend... Ron is able to determine who the writer is based off of that phone call. Maybe he recognized the voice or as you pointed out, captain, maybe a meetup is set up or maybe there's something in the words that were spoken that confirmed his earlier suspicions. Liam Neeson. And he's going to go out and confront 
this writer. I will find you and then I will kill well, you. Well, he crashes his truck into a tree. And unfortunately, Ron Gillespie died that night. And it is determined by the sheriff's department, Pickaway County Sheriff's Department, that this was a vehicular accident resulting in the death of Ron Gillespie. At the scene, inside his truck, they find Ron Gillespie's gun, a revolver, which goes along with the story that we've been told per local legend by the children that he grabbed his gun and ran off. And there has been one shot that was fired. You heard the Unsolved Mysteries description of the shot fired. The other local legend and rumor was that his wife was conveniently out of town, may have been having this affair leading up to this event. Frisky in Florida. And that she is somehow responsible for what was an actual murder or somebody that kind of set up this accident, ran him off the road was firing at his truck. We know with his revolver that there was a spent shell casing and eight live rounds found in the revolver, meaning that at some point that gun was fired and it shot that bullet. Right. This is what everybody at the time would point out to say, well, he fired at somebody. That means that there was foul play. Later, the letter writer then accuses the Pickaway County Sheriff's Office of covering it up, claiming it was an accident when in fact that it was an all, it was all set up. It was set up for Ron to die that night or something bad to happen to Ron that night. Why would the police or the sheriff want anything bad to happen to this guy? Not that they would want something bad to happen to him, but some of the rumor was that they were covering it up for either Mary Gillespie or for, Gordon Massey, mm. or for both, or maybe somebody that's not named. Doesn't really make sense. Let's dive into that a little bit, because there's a lot to chew through in this situation, because the way that that picture has been painted for many years is, in fact, that it was either covered up or they just, the sheriff's department got it wrong and Ron was killed or harm was meant to be done to him that night. You know, like I said before, if he fires a shot, I lean more towards foul play. But now that we're talking about it, it just seems very suspicious anyways. And if he had a really bad traffic history, maybe that people would have brought that up as a proof that, that, that this was just an accident. But the whole thing just seems so fishy either way. Everything about it seems fishy from all angles, in my opinion. The whole Circleville writer thing is fishy at all angles as well. So mm. let's look at this one from all angles. First off, they run a toxicology report on the deceased, on Ron Gillespie. They find that he has a 0.16% alcohol level. Currently in the state of Ohio, the Ohio legal blood alcohol content level is below 0.08. So anyone over the age of 21 or anyone of any age mm -hmm. with a BAC of 0.08 or higher can be charged with operating a vehicle impaired or OVI. So by the state law, he's drunk driving. Right. This is general information. This comes out to the public at the time. Well, friends and family of Ron Gillespie say, well, he wasn't a big drinker. I don't know that that answers 
the question of whether he was drinking that night or not. Right. Like you said, the report proves that he was drunk. The other thing that doesn't make any sense is the story that we get all these years later, and I want to be clear here. I'm not accusing his children of making up a story or misremembering or anything. We are hearing this story second, third, fourth, fifth hand. Mm -hmm. Who knows how many hands we're out at this point? I wish they'd wash them. But at, at this point, Captain, the story that we are left with is he receives this mysterious phone call. He tells his children, I know who the letter writer is, runs upstairs, grabs his gun, runs out to his truck, and speeds off into the night. Now, when Ron Gillespie was found crashed into that tree, it was 10.28 p.m. Today is 2021, if I have my year correct. To this day, the area where he crashed his truck is not well lit. There's hardly any lights, if any, in the very in that very specific area. A lot of people say, hey, this is not an area that this is an area that he knew well, that he would have traveled many times. He wouldn't have crashed his truck that night. But you're saying that people are saying he didn't drink often. And so maybe he wouldn't be able to handle his liquor as well as or handle the alcohol level as well as somebody else that was a daily drinker or weekly drinker. So to address the elephant in the room, first off, you have a situation where stole my penis. Ron Gillespie may or may not believe the letters he's receiving that his wife is having an affair. And his wife is down in Florida, out of town, out of state that night. Okay, so let's assume he doesn't believe the letters. His wife should be free to go and do whatever she wants. She should be free to go and do whatever she wants anyway, but couldn't you see a situation if he does believe the letters that he says, I don't feel comfortable with you going out of state. Right. I don't feel comfortable with you going out of town. Now let's take it a step further. By this point, he and his wife have been told in several letters that the letter writers watching their vehicles, their house, their property, they have a fairly big property, by the way, and their children. Some of the threats have even been directed to their daughter, who, depending on what source you read at this point in our story, that night that Ron died would have been seven or eight years old. I cannot fathom a situation where I would be the father of a small child and be receiving threats to my family where I decide one night, I know who's making those threats. I'm going to go off and get them and leave you two kids here. That's why I question the phone call and what Ron's actual actions and intent was that evening. Right. Well, it could have been somebody calling saying, Hey, you know how your wife said she's in Florida. I think I just saw her in a car with some guy. Or I think I just saw her walk into some bar with a guy. It could have been anything. You know what I mean? And then it was like, oh, well, I'm going to catch her now. The other situation then becomes the spent round. We've kind of been circling around that. The police couldn't figure out if he shot the gun that night or not. So a lot of the times when this story is retold, it's told to say that between the time he left his home and crashed his truck into that tree, he fired that gun. Well, it's a revolver. That spent casing stays in there until you physically remove it. He could have fired that shot between leaving his house and crashing into the tree. He could have fired it the day before, a week before, a year before. We do not know when that gun was fired to leave behind that spent casing. What we do know is inside the revolver, they find a spent casing in eight live rounds. 
what they also find in the truck. Now, the tricky thing is the gun is found as described in the police report from the accident. Mind you, this is a lengthy police report, probably about 10 pages, roughly. It says that the, that the gun was found underneath of him. This crash was horrible. His truck, what happened, Captain, is the road turned, and for whatever reason, his truck did not follow that turn in the road. It started to go off the road, and it traveled 36 feet from the road, crashed into the tree, and continued another seven feet. But it wasn't just the gun that they found inside the vehicle. Mind you, it almost threw Ron completely from the truck out the window. He's halfway out the window when they find him. Yeah, he had no seatbelt on. So to say that the gun was found under him really is a loosey-goosey description of where the gun was actually found, in my opinion, considering he's halfway out the truck. But also found in the in the truck, Captain, is a full box of twenty two caliber Winchester Western Wildcat ammo. Right. Which is not included in the local legend, not included in the story from the children that we've heard second, third, 50th hand all these years later. They say he ran upstairs and grabbed his gun. No mention of grabbing a box of ammunition. My other question then becomes, if he did grab both, why? How many times did he intend to shoot this person? He has nine bullets in his gun. I wonder if he kept the gun in the truck. And it was found at the scene of his death at the scene of this vehicle accident because that's where it should have been found because that's where he kept it. Well, and the bullets could have been kept in the truck as well. Exactly. Think of this. It's 1977. In the glove box underneath your seat. And also, this is, you know, this is a, a city, yes, but it's, it's a rural community. This, it's 1977. You own a pickup truck. Yeah. Doesn't it a seem pick a up, little... A pick-em-up truck, yeah. I would love to go back in time and interview guys that lived in the area, especially guys that are around Ron's age, and ask them, hey, do you keep a gun in your truck? Mm-hmm. I'm guessing that the percentage would be higher than most people would think. I'd say, is that a gun in your truck, or are you just happy to see me? Both. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> I'm happy that I brought my gun and that I saw you. Yeah. That brings up another thought. Mm-hmm. Could he have... Lost control. See, this is all that it means. It doesn't mean that he crashed in this truck tree or somebody ran him into this tree. He very quickly could have lost control of this truck as soon as he went off the road. If he's drunk, if he's traveling at a high rate of speed in a, a an area that's not well lit, it's very conceivable that he lost control of the vehicle. And this is just sadly an accident a fatal accident. Then people point out, well, the truck was towed immediately and destroyed shortly afterwards. And that is more point of a cover up that there were bullet holes in his truck and nobody wanted that to be seen. Well, maybe they just didn't want this scene to be seen by the public in general. Well, it's signed off by his wife, Mary Gillespie. It's her property at this point, you know, the other thing, too, is the truck was totaled. There's no use for the truck at this point. And your loved one just died in the vehicle. Doesn't seem like something you would really want to keep a hold of or have much use for. Right. 
So here's the other problem with it being a cover-up. If Sheriff Radcliffe got it wrong or the Pickaway County Sheriff's Department decided to cover it up. First off, there were multiple agencies involved in this situation in analyzing and determining what they believed happened that night. First of all, you have the coroner who has to sign off on the fatal injuries. The coroner decided not to do an autopsy. It was not necessary. Unfortunately, the deceased arrived at Burger Hospital, and he had already passed by this point. Well, and also at this point, um, some of the sources say that this guy wouldn't have done the autopsy anyways. They normally took murder cases and things of that nature and actually sent them to Columbus where they had more experience. Well, and we have a situation, too, where this is not just Sheriff Radcliffe showing up and determining that it's an accident. We have Detective Phil Brown who arrives on the scene. He's actually the lead uh, at this accident scene. So now we have to have two people covered up. And of course, Phil Brown works for Radcliffe, so that's not too hard to believe. But where did Pickaway County Sheriff's Department get the call from? They got the call from Mount Sterling Police Department. Okay, so now Mount Sterling has to be in on it. Oh, and by the way, they were curious about the gun and they were curious about the spent casing as well. So they sent the gun and the ammo off to BCI, Bureau of Criminal Identification and Investigation here in Ohio, in London, Ohio, a much bigger, more capable agency than the Pickaway Sheriff's Department at that time, still to this day. So BCI has to be involved in the cover-up. Usually when people decide to cover things up, Captain, I'm not one that covers things up myself, so I don't know this from experience, but I'm guessing that when you choose to cover something up, you like to keep most of that stuff in-house. You don't send it off to this big fancy agency who can figure out what's going on. Mm -hmm. They sent it off for all the right reasons. They sent it off because they wanted to ask BCI, can you tell us anything about this gun? Did it belong to the deceased that we found and is there any reason that we should think that this that this spent casing was involved in any other incident they look for information this goes on for months and determine very quickly that no this this spent casing is not related to any other incident that we can find so i like local legend as much as the next guy i like the folklore as much as anybody else But the evidence here stacks up that this is, in fact, an accident. Sometimes a cigar is just a smoke. Sometimes things are what they appear to be. What are your thoughts so far? We want to hear them. Go to truecrimegarage.com and leave your comments on the blog. We will see you back in the garage tomorrow. Until then, be good, be kind, and don't litter.
Whether you're making the same breakfast that you have every day or baking a cake for an extra special day, eggs are a staple in our diets. Eggland's best eggs are nutritionally superior to ordinary eggs, containing more vitamins and 25% less saturated fat. Not only are they better for you, but Eggland's best eggs taste better too. There's a reason that they're America's number one eggs. Visit egglandsbest.com for additional information and delicious recipes.